Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. This is Adam. And I'm Chris. We're going to depart from our normal format for this episode, and instead of a hot take review, we're going to discuss what makes a board game fun to us. We also have the designers of the hot new Stonemaier game, Red Rising, Jamie Stegmeier, and Alex Schmidt on our show to talk about the game. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you that we're giving away a copy of Frosthaven when the Kickstarter delivers. To get an entry, all you have to do is follow us on Twitter at BG underscore Hot Takes or on Facebook at Board Game Hot Takes, and you can get two additional entries if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave us a review, send an email over to Tim. His email address is tim at boardgamehottakes.com. Or drop us a message on social media and tell us the name you used so Tim can mark you down for your extra entries. Now let's get on with the show. Jamie Stegmeier is the founder of Stonemeyer Games and the designer of several popular games, including Scythe, Viticulture, and Tapestry. He's joining us, along with his co-designer, Alex Schmidt, to talk about their upcoming game release based on the Pierce Brown novel of the same name, Red Rising. Jamie and Alex, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to talk with you today about your upcoming game, Red Rising. Can you start off by giving us a brief description of the game and, and what it's all about? Sure. Alex, why don't you go ahead? You, you, you don't often get to do this, so... I'll let you do more of the talk of the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so uh, Red Rising is, well, first first and foremost, it is uh, based off of the books by Pierce Brown. And as, as a game, it is a hand management game. The gameplay is inspired by Fantasy Realms, uh, where on your turn, you are generally, you are playing a card, and then you are picking up a different card off of the table. And each of those, uh, the card you play is going to have an effect on the game, and the card you pick up, uh, where you pick it up from, is going to have another effect. And it's all about creating combos out of that. Okay, great. Thanks for that. And, and if any listeners are interested in reading more about the game and the design process, you can find Jamie and Alex's design diaries on the Stonemeyer website. We'll try to ask some questions today that aren't already covered there. So Adam, go ahead and kick us off. Hey guys, Adam here. Thanks for coming on the show today. My first question for you guys is, what is it about the books that captivated you, and how does that translate into the gameplay? Well, I, I heard about the books many years ago. Alex read them a little bit more recently. I loved a lot about the books. I love uh, dystopian fiction, and I thought the books presented a very interesting type of dystopia where um, the society of Red Rising has been divided into kind of genetically engineered castes. It's a kind of a caste-based society based on colors. It's not the same as the color of our skin in, in, in the real world, but it is an allegory to that. So it does look at some of the issues regarding race in, in the real world too, as all great speculative fiction does. So I love that part of it. It also just has a great story, a great plot. And the thing that really elevated it was, for me, the, the relationships between the characters, the personalities of the characters, and the tough choices that they have to make, including some really tough leadership decisions that a number of characters have to make throughout the series. So that, that is what elevates it for me, for, that, that really hooked me into the series and made me want to design a game around the concept. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't actually read it until after Jamie um, brought me in to think about uh, working on the game with him. And so I was reading it from the the perspective of someone who is looking to design a game here. But the Pierce really did an amazing job of taking each character and having them be a person who has some good qualities, some bad qualities. Uh, whether they're whether they're a hero or a villain in the portrayal of the books, they're ultimately they are a character who struggles, and even the good guys are not always good. 
Have any of you read the books? Yeah, Jamie, actually a few years ago or a couple years ago when you mentioned you were looking to design the series, I had overheard one of your interviews. So I picked him up and really enjoyed him and I've recommended him to several other friends. And in fact, uh, just recently, Chris started reading him on my recommendation. And this was right before he made the announcement about the game. I cool. I had, uh, I, I, I thought it might be coming based on some past you know, hints that you've given. So I, I was like, this is a perfect time for you to pick it up. You should see what you think. Awesome. Yeah, and I did, and oh, I've, I've been loving it. Yeah, I've been, I've been loving the books. They've, they've been great. And actually, Jamie, I had a follow-up question for you about that. Mm -hmm. Going back and getting ready for the interview, I was looking at, you know, all the games you've designed and published, and I was kind of looking, you know, looking for themes, and I a very clear one emerged. You know, you got Scythe and Euphoria, and now you got Red Rising, and that dystopia is definitely, it seems like your thing, and you had, you had mentioned that, but what is it about dystopia that, that draws you in? Yeah, it's a good question. I hadn't, I hadn't quite thought about Scythe in that way, but Scythe is, a, you know, it's at least an alternate reality, an alternate version of our universe. Mm -hmm. I, I don't exactly know. I do. I just love dystopian fiction. I love um, fiction that takes our world to the extreme in some interesting way. Because I think it's, like I mentioned with Red Rising, it's kind of an, it often ends up being a, kind of a lesson about things that we can learn about our world and the choices that we make in real life if we go a little bit too far with some of those choices. But also, I think one of the fun things about dystopias, it, this is hard to say, but all dystopias seem to start out with a utopia in mind. Like whoever designed these dystopias didn't go into it saying, I want to make a terrible world. <laughs> they had some ideal that they thought would make the world a better place. And it just didn't work out that way. And I just find that an interesting hook for, for fiction or game design. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, great. And now um, with Red Rising specifically, I... You know, I was looking at um, what you've indicated the weight of the game, you know, maybe, and kind of looking at the gameplay, and it seems a little bit lighter than some of your other designs. And I was curious, I, I know it's based on Fantasy Realms, which is a very much a kind of a, a filler game. It's a very small, light game. But did the weight of the game, was that kind of driven, did that come just organically, or was that driven by your intention that you're potentially getting fans of the books into this game and you wanted to give something that was going to be a little bit easier for them, more accessible for them to get to, you know, was that a, was that a conscious choice? Yeah, Alex, why don't you jump in here and I'll, I'll piggyback off you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this one, it was very definitely a conscious choice. Um, I think some of the early designs that Jamie worked towards, and he'll talk, he can talk about that more, but um, there's, there's this desire to catch the entirety of the, of this world. And as a, a giant dystopian sci-fi world, you can imagine like a, a Twilight Imperium type game. And not only is that not exactly a Stonemeyer game, but that's that's not the kind of game that would be friendly for uh, people who know the books. And like it may be what they think they want, but if people who are not necessarily gamers, if they were to try to start, you know, learn a game like that, that could be overwhelming. Versus, yeah, what we uh, came up with is intentionally something that's friendly for uh, anyone who is new to gaming. Um, I, I will say, in a very early playtest, uh, we the card the hand size was seven cards the same as fantasy realms and i really liked it that way personally but it wasn't the right decision for the game for the weight of the game because there was just too much complexity added uh, right at the start of the game that way it still fits into the model like the the kind of the model for stomar games are that we try to make event games we don't make games that you have to plan a weekend around but we also don't make games that you can play in 15 20 minutes between two cities is the one exception to that but that was kind of before we decided this is what we wanted to do as a company for all of our games. Mm -hmm. And so Red Rising, we probably could have, like what Alex just said, we could have made it a 10 to 15 minute, very light game. And that would probably have been even more inviting to 
pure Red Rising fans who aren't gamers, but that didn't fit into the Stillmire mold. So we ended up with a game that plays in around 45 minutes, a little longer or a little shorter, but depending on player count. And so it still kind of is in that event game category. And I found playing with Megan here that we often play two games back to back because it, it doesn't take that much time. And it, it's the type of game where you finish and you're like, oh, okay, at least for me, I want to play again right away. And so back when we get back to the days of, of game nights, we'll be able to play, people will be able to play it back to back if they want to at one game. Night. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Makes sense. Now, just a quick follow-up on that. Um, obviously, you know, you just finished this design, and I know you uh, had been working on a Red Rising design for a little while. If if this is successful, do you do you see another future tabletop game in the Red Rising world? Do you think you would go with something with a more epic scope if that happened, or is that future and, and you'll just you know, turn that corner it, when you get to it. I, it? I would consider it, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to close the door to more games in the Red Rising world if, if depending on how this game is received and, and what people hope for the future. And we definitely don't have anything in the works, okay. but, uh, but I'm open to it, especially since when I kind of planted that seed a couple years ago for other designers to submit games to us. Um, I know some designers submitted some, some great games and others might still be working on them. So it's possible we'll get a submission in a year that we're just like, oh, wow, this is such a cool game. It's a lot bigger than what we thought, but uh, we can't resist it. So it, it's possible, yeah. Whether it's it's us or someone else, the Red Rising universe is, is big enough. There's enough going along. There's enough depth that there is space for any number of different games set in that universe if that were to happen. Great. So, Jamie, I was watching the video, the YouTube video, I believe it's from April 2018, on how you failed to make a design for a Red Rising board game. Were any of those designs close to coming to fruition? And then as a follow-up to that, mm -hmm. with a failed design, do any of those, what do you do with a failed design? Does it just, does it go away? Do you kind of table it and maybe bring it back later? Have you ever designed a completed board game from a failed design? If you could speak to that, yeah, I'd like to hear it. Uh, for, for those early designs, I, I, I mean, I, I learned from every game that I designed that doesn't end up becoming a reality. And I learned you know, a lot from iterations of games. Like the early versions of Scythe are very, very different than the final version of what Scythe became. Um, but uh, the early versions of Red Rising were just very different than what we ended up with. They were mostly worker placement games. There were some. There was, I, I believe, at least one bag building iteration. They all used meeples of all fourteen colors found in the Red Rising world, and it just I, I I couldn't juggle that many abilities. And often the scope was too big. It was kind of a player sitting down, looking down at this world of Red Rising, looking down at this universe, and it didn't feel like you were really immersed in that world. So there are mechanisms, especially bag building. I learned a lot about bag building during that process that might come up in a future game, but, uh, but none of it ended up really directly contributing to the final design that, that Alex and I came up with. Yeah, and it seems like the, uh, the characters really are kind of at the core. I mean, like any good story, the characters are really what's at the core of it. So I can appreciate how you'd want to incorporate as much yeah. of that as you can. But that actually leads to a question. I'd like to dig into mechanics a little bit. Um, I am a huge sucker for theme. The more heavily themed the game is, I just absolutely love it. And so one of my favorite things in a game is when you've got a theme and a mechanism that kind of come together nicely in some kind of a clever way. Like a couple of examples, uh, Wingspan has a great example. I love the fact that you, know, you have a predatory bird can eat another bird. You draw the card, but it, depends, it has to be the right size bird. Obviously, you know, a, an eagle is not going to eat a great blue heron, for example. Or uh, in Scythe, where if you start combat in a space where you've got, you know, civilians living, 
you're going to drop in popularity. So the mechanisms and the theme kind of come together in, in a great way. And I wanted to hear from both of you guys if there are, you know, give a couple of examples that you really like about Red Rising where the theme and the, a player ability or a card ability or a faction ability kind of plays into that. Alex, do you want to share one maybe? A lot of them are based on different colors in the game. So Alex, do you have maybe a, a color that you want to mention? And I'll mention one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I, my first thought was actually a specific card. And that's uh, that's uh, Cassius. Okay. Cassius doesn't like to be with Darrow unless he is also with Mustang. Like, it, it's subtle, but it, it gives you that sense of a, of a story uh, that's present there, uh, even though you're not getting the story itself in the card play. One other kind of example like that are the Obsidians. The Obsidians are the kind of the brutish assassins of the world of Red Rising. And I, I just wrote about them today in today's design diary, so they're fresh on my mind. But uh, one of the things the Obsidians do when you deploy them, almost every Obsidian banishes the card that they're placed on top of. So they're, they're essentially, even though you can get banished cards back, they're essentially killing a, a character in the game, because that's often what obsidians in the world do. You 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 tell your obsidian assassin to go take out one of a, an opposing faction's character or something like that. So that we, we kind of looked at every color in that way and said, what does this color feel like? What do they do? And how can we represent that mechanically in the game? That's awesome. That sounds exciting. Yeah. Um, no, I want to talk a little bit about the production, because you've mentioned now you're going to be releasing a retail version and a deluxe version of the game. And you've I don't know if you've shared all the details in the deluxe version, but you've hinted, you've shown some of them in the design diary so far. And there's one feature that actually stood out to me, because just a couple of weeks ago, our group was chatting about how it's surprising that there isn't foil cards in a lot of modern tabletop board games like that's been around in collectible card games and Magic the Gathering for years. And it's a nice premium feature. What inspired you to add that to Red Rising? Was it from something like Magic the Gathering or have you seen other board games that, that did something similar? Well, I'll, I'll speak to this a little bit. And Alex has an interesting perspective based on the company that he worked for before Stonemaier Games. I play I play Magic and I love foil cards in Magic. And I, I wanted something like the golds in Red Rising, the gold characters. There are more of them in the game than any other character because there are more. They, the books kind of focus on these characters. They're the elite of the world, mm -hmm. and so I wanted. I just wanted something to make those cards stand out and feel extra special. And uh, foil came to mind pretty early for that. And part of that stemmed from Magic. Another part of it, um, and I'll let Alex chime in here, is that uh, Alex worked for a company called Greater Than Games that makes Sentinels of the Multiverse. Okay. And they have some foil cards that are really beautiful. And I think it it may have come up perhaps in a conversation about those cards uh, when we decided to put foil in Red Rising. So so I guess uh, two things. First, with yeah, with Greater Than Games and Sentinels of the Multiverse, uh, basically uh, with sort of the, the culminating expansion, uh, they released um, a an anniversary, a fifth anniversary set of uh, foil character cards. So all the cards that are in front of you all the time in that game um, have have the foil if you get that version. It's the same as the, the previous cards, but but with the, the foil and slightly different art. And and that's been that's been fairly popular. I, I don't think it would be as popular with that game with the cards that are just shuffled into your deck because they only come up every once in a while. Yeah. But uh, that's worked pretty well. I would say the the one struggle with modern games versus like well modern games uh, CCGs or LCGs or TCGs or whatever you want to call them they have like the randomness to them so if you get a foil card it's something special versus if I'm buying Red Rising or I'm buying Sentinels or I'm buying um, any you know Fantasy Flight uh, living card game you know exactly what cards you're getting in the box and so there it doesn't have quite the same effect because there's not the rarity assigned to them. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Was the 
the cost to manufacture those prohibitive in any way that would prevent you from putting them in future you know, publishes on a regular basis, or do you just think it, it's something you would only want to include when it's special like that? I, w- I would definitely want it to stay special, but it, it's not all that cost prohibitive. It's it's a little bit graphic, like it takes more effort for graphic design. You have to offer, create more layers uh, to send to the uh, to mm-hmm. the, the manufacturer. And there are also different types of foil, like the type of foil in Red Rising is a, is a little textured. You can, you can kind of rub your finger over it and feel it a little bit versus a type of foil that's more just kind of integrated into the background of the card makes it shiny. I think that's a little less expensive. But uh, it, it is something that we could include, and I, I would actually love to include it in future games too, if, if it makes it a certain type of card feel special. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Sounds good. All right, we just have one last round of yeah. questions here. So Adam, go ahead and jump in. That sounds so appealing, that, that foil with the texture. Yeah. I just want to put my hands on that card and, and uh, get a hold of it. That sounds so nice. And that's funny with the cats, too. Tim's cat is always trying to get airtime, so that's what <laughs> So my next question, I'm going to broaden the scope a little bit, but I want to hear about specifically Red Rising, too. What is the most difficult part of game design to overcome? Or, in other words, when do you know you have a successful idea or project on hand? So if you can give me the broad scope answer and then how you knew with Red Rising when that moment happened? Yeah, it's a big question. And Alex, I know you have a little anecdote that I cut from your design diary post. So maybe you can mention that about our Dewey's, our first playtest at Dewey's. Part of it for me, I mean, a big part of it is, you know, I play play these games a lot. If if we're thinking about publishing a game, whether I'm the designer or the developer, and there's always a moment when I'm going through this process, or there always is or isn't a moment where I realize that I am just having fun with the game. And sometimes that doesn't come. Sometimes that moment never comes, and we ended up we ended up not publishing it. Because even though my fun is subjective, as the person who is publishing the game, I need to say this game is actually fun. That I I am having fun with this game. Um, and usually with a prototype, it goes through. It takes a while for it to get to that point. With Red Rising, it came really early. Um, once we figured out this connection to fantasy realms and how we can make this work, um, and that's the anecdote that I'm hoping Alex shares here. But that, that, that's a, that was a big part of it for, for, that's a big part of it for any game, but for Red Rising in particular, it was nice to have that happen so early in the process because after attempting like four previous designs, if we hadn't hit that pretty early, I may have given up on it uh, again and, and just let it be. That's got to be such an incredible moment to realize, to have that breakthrough and be like, this is it, we got it, we, this is what we want. It's got to be so nice. Yeah, yeah, especially after we spent a lot of time on it. Yeah. Alex, do you know the story that I'm talking about? Yeah. So it was, uh, we, we sat down for the first uh, play test with uh, uh, Jamie's business partner, Alan, who's also the co-designer of Viticulture. Um, And we, so we sat down at Dewey's Pizza, uh, which is a a local pizza place. I actually used to work there. And we played through this, this like very first prototype. And, And, you know, normally the first prototype you play it and something breaks, you usually don't get through the game at all. And it just like, even just explaining the rules to Alan, uh, he immediately was like, Jamie, this is the simplest, like, I understand the rules of this game, this game. I've never had this happen for the first prototype where like, you tell me the rules and it just makes sense. And then we just played through it and it it worked. That is, that is not normal. That's never happened for any, like, this is my first published game, but I've designed other games and that's never happened with any of those. Um, And from what I've heard from Jamie, that's uh, very unusual for him as well. Yeah, all of my other first play tests are terrible. Yeah. This one was not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with the the other half of the question, I would say the hardest thing for me personally, at least as a new designer, is 
knowing when it's finished, like, and whether that's when is it good enough to take to a publisher because a publisher is going to want to change it slightly to fit with what they want for the game, or as as if you're you know self publishing, when are you done? There's always like little tweaks you can do, and so I've really enjoyed working with Jamie for that because I can. My co-designer in this case is also the publisher, <laughs> so that's his problem. <laughs> Great. Nice. Now, uh, Chris, I'm going to interrupt you because I know you're going to jump into a question, but I want to follow up since uh, Alex was just chatting about his involvement here. Now, Alex, being the co-designer on the Red Rising game, I also noticed that you recently became an employee of Stonemaier Games as of last year. Mm-hmm. I was just curious, did that, did your um, involvement in Red Rising come out of your employment there or vice versa or w- were they unrelated? You know, was there, was there something about working together on this game that, you know, Jamie, you said, well, Alex is a great fit for our team and I want to bring him in. How did, how did that uh, come about? Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's unrelated, but it's it's not. Neither was a direct result of the other. Um, Jamie and I have known each other since uh, 2016, I think, um, and so we've been friends. I've been in his game his gaming group since then, um, and in uh, late 2017, I uh, started working for Greater Than Games, and the primary uh, role I had there was to actually help uh, Stonemeyer. Greater Than Games does like warehousing and fulfillment uh, for Stonemeyer. And so my primary role was a liaison on between the two companies, which worked great because I, I knew uh, Paul and Christopher and the guys at Greater Than, as well as knowing Jamie. And so my working for Stonemaier Games was more of a natural uh, progression of that. Okay. Uh, but that came out of me knowing Jamie, and us working on this design together also came out of me knowing Jamie. So, okay. so they're related, but not uh, direct Interesting. It's got to be convenient to have the co-designer, you know, working for the same company. So your your you know your boss is also your co-designer. You can schedule you know schedule time appropriately and things like that. The, the, has that been a, a good working relationship for you? For me, for me, yeah, definitely, yeah, it, yeah. I, it, it, it'll be interesting to navigate moving forward because I enjoyed working with Alex so much on this co-design that I want to design more games with Alex in the future. But we also have to make sure that we're getting our core jobs done. Like my core job is running some of our games. Alex's yeah. core job is as a director of sales. So we almost have to find time in our spare time to do this design work. But also as uh, I have to respect Alex's time in many different ways uh, through that process because he does, he does a lot as director of sales, but he's also fun to design with. It's just, it's tough to, it'll be tough to balance going forward, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Jamie, you know, made the mistake of hiring me and giving me a slightly higher workload than I had before, so I have slightly less of your time. All right, Chris, why don't we uh, jump in with the last question here? Yeah, so I wanted to uh, wrap up by inviting you to daydream a little bit here, and uh, without giving away any you know future plans or anything, if you guys, and this is for each of you, if you were the king of the world and had the opportunity to work a game with any intellectual property that you could... What would it be? This I, I'm I'm curious about Alex's answer because for me it's it's uh, like Red Rising was the answer it has been the answer for that question for so long um, that I, I don't have a, I don't have another one. Um, the the closest I can say is that there are certain world builders that I would love to work with um, on new IPs. Uh, one is uh, like Jakob Ruzalski, how he, he created this world of Scythe and we kind of built it together through it, through the game. Um, and that was exciting for me to see the popularity for his 1920-plus world grow thanks to Scythe and vice versa. And there are a few other artists like that that I think are really, really good world builders that I would love to build worlds with at, at, through game design. But I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about what Alex will say here because he hasn't had this dream of Red Rising in his head since 2014. <laughs> 
I would say there are a couple. Um, it's hard to come down to just one. Um, the, the obvious one for me is uh, Brandon Sanderson, like anything Brandon Sanderson. Like there have been a few games that are on his based on his IPs, but there's nothing that's sort of like a, and and in some ways that's actually closer to Red Rising. There's nothing that's like a comprehensive. Here is this world. Here's an experience of this world. Um, and there's he makes such compelling worlds that it would be very satisfying to do a game like that. But then there's there's just a few like uh, video game worlds. Like I I played uh, Guild Wars one and Guild Wars two the uh, MMOs back through like in in college especially and there there's a really cool world there and nice. that would be really fun to bring into some kind of uh, tabletop experience as well can i th- can i throw that question right back at you guys before we close out what you want to throw out an ip real quick that you'd love to see us make a game in in that world uh-huh if you have a second you know, I grew up with, uh, I've always been a huge Star Wars fan, so that's an easy one for me. And obviously there have been Star Wars games done. I don't, I I think um, none of them have really been, uh, you know, exactly fun games to me, the, the Star Wars games that are out there. there. There's some solid ones, but nothing that's quite, I, I just, I think what Stonemaier, the model that you use and the, the type of fun you add to your games, I think there could be a really awesome game in there that 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 would probably be an ideal for me it's an easy one that's in that's an easy yeah. one to hit out of the park what about you guys chris or adam so i'll jump in while chris is thinking i am really into the world of the expanse Ooh. the the books and there's a tv show but you talk about allegorical stories there's so much there to explore yeah. and it's a near future sci-fi which is a theme that that resonates with me so i'd like to see more development on the expanse there already is an expanse board game which is really good but i think there's so much more to explore and develop in that world and i i would love to see more material on the yeah. expanse mm-hmm. i love that book series yeah what do, you, what do you got chris chris you have one uh for me i have to say yeah it's funny because i i hadn't even uh, thought of this answer just but it popped into my head and i'm like that would be great aerosmith <laughs> oh, i don't know if there are any games out there <laughs> based on rock and roll bands, but maybe that's a niche that needs to be found. <laughs> that's awesome. Why Aerosmith specifically, Chris? What what uh, what pops out for you that would make... I don't know. It just seems like that would lend itself to a game. <laughs> I don't know. Funny. All right, great. Well, how and where can listeners purchase Red Rising? When is it going to be available and, and where can they get it? Yeah, so the pre-order will be in early March. We don't have an exact date yet. Probably March 3rd, maybe March 10th, early March. And then um, the game is already on the boats headed to fulfillment centers now. So we plan on shipping it to pre-order customers in late March, early April. Okay, great, great. And once, uh, if if they don't pre-order and it's going to retail, do you know what retailers you know may carry it, or just any any local game store, um, any anywhere specific you would send people? Yeah, it'll be available through distributors worldwide uh, and and through the, the the retailers that they serve, and that'll be a few months after our pre-order date, uh, probably uh, late May, early June. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. And do you know when it's expected to be available on Tabletopia or any other online platforms um, yeah. due, due to the current situation? It'll be available on Tabletopia right before the pre-order, a few days before the pre-order, so people can try it out and see if it's something they want to to buy a tabletop version of. And then we are working with Board Game Arena to get it on there, and we probably have a digital, we haven't signed the, the contract yet, but we have a digital partner for a full AI digital version as well. Okay, so, fantastic. Yeah. Well, good luck with the release, you guys. Yeah. Um, we're really excited to try it out, and you know, we'll definitely be trying out the digital version as soon as we can, and we'll talk about it on the show and, and give our thoughts. But thanks again for joining us. This was great. Yeah, thank thanks you, for your time. Nice yeah, to meet you. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.
Hi guys, Adam here. As we move into this next segment, I wanna give you guys a little bit of warning about Chris's audio. It's not the cleanest. I tried to clean it up as best as I could, but I didn't do the greatest of jobs, so I apologize for that. I try to give the highest production quality that I can do. I'm not an expert by any means, but I wanna give your ears a warning, and I wanna urge you to listen to what he's saying and not necessarily how it sounds. So be warned, I think the content's really great. Again, I apologize for the audio on Chris's side. We're working hard to give you our best product. Hope you enjoy. All right, let's talk about fun. Specifically, let's talk about fun in board games. Each of us is gonna discuss a few specific elements of board games that we find particularly fun, and we'll provide some examples of games that have that element. So this is a topic that I think is gonna be really interesting because everybody seems to have their own tastes. Board games is, is no exception. And I find it, there are some games that I really love that maybe you're not that hot on, you'll still play it with me. Same thing goes the other way. Some of the games that you guys really love, it's your favorites, they don't necessarily get me as excited. And we have some different things that we're looking for in the experience of a board gamer that really makes it exciting for us. So that's why we brought up this topic. Now, this uh, this was Adam's suggestion, and this actually came up one night. I think it was after um, the Capital Lux um, review, if I remember right. But I think, you know, Adam was kind of saying, Chris, you know, really didn't like Capital Lux, but Adam was had enjoyed it, and he was saying, you know, sometimes we should talk about what actually makes games fun for us because, you know, we just don't always agree. So I think it's a pretty interesting topic. Um, I'm curious, you know, how did you guys come about making this list? Uh, was it was it a hard one for you? And, you know, what, what did you do? This is, this is not as easy to quantify as some of the other things we've done. This was a fun kind of homework exercise for me. So what I did, I took a few, I looked at my favorite games and I wrote them down and I listed what I like about each of those games. And then I tried to go across those lists and look for common themes that lined up. And I was able to find four themes pretty easily. It was interesting to see what the crossovers were. And then there were some other games that had outliers. Like I enjoyed them for totally separate reasons than the rest of my others. It was, um, it took a little time and effort, but it was a fun kind of exploratory process for me. What about you, Chris? How did you go about diagramming what makes a game fun? Well, you know, it was funny. Uh, not a little bit of, you know, shameless self-promotion for the, um, podcast here, but I actually went back and listened to some of our old episodes and, you know, kind of got that, you know, that immediately after game response that we all had to the, you know, the different games that we played. And I kind of listened for some themes and they actually came out pretty frequently. And even, you know, my own comments, you know, it's funny because you go back and you listen to yourself, you know, the things that you say and you kind of get some themes out of that too. And you sometimes go, oh, wow, that's right. I, that, that is how I feel about it. I can sort of see a pattern emerging there. So uh, going back and seeing and seeing, listening to some of that stuff again really helped me put together a list, and it ended up being pretty easy. It's pretty obvious stuff after I a little bit of thought. How'd you come up with your list, Tim? Yeah, I you know when we started planning for this episode, I like I always do, just thought about it over and over again for weeks. You know, I was bouncing around in my head a lot, and I couldn't settle on exactly what I wanted to say. I was finding different things, and you know, different different elements match different games that I love, but I I wasn't really working out. So I finally had to put it down on paper. I had to start just kind of kind of brainstorming on paper a few things that I like and then I could match up with some games and find what ones were the right fit. So it was it was actually quite challenging for me and it was also hard because there's a lot I find you know fun about games. Um, it, it was not easy for me to settle on just a handful of topics but I probably could have gone on and on about it. So I did try to to pick a few things that I, you know I, I maybe did the same things you did as I found a couple of my favorite games and 
just thought about what made them fun for me and then linked those to other games and, and stuff like that. But there was one common thread that I found throughout my, my lists here. Well, you know what? I'll circle back to that after the end. Let's, let's talk through the re- what we find fun about games. And I want to kind of bounce back on what I find as a common theme. Before we actually get into our list, I'd like to uh, give you guys a chance to take a guess at what your other hosts think are fun about games. Chris, why don't we start with you? If you had to take a guess, and let's see how much you know, how well you know us, what's one of the things that you think Adam is looking for in a game or what he really finds fun in, and what's one of the things that you, that that I find fun? Wow, that's interesting. Um, You know, it's, okay, so for Adam, I, I see an interesting juxtaposition between the fact that he buys a lot of these big, incredibly complex games with, you know, I mean, like a you know, hundred pages worth of instructions and, 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 you know, like oodles of pieces and a, you know, a, a, a game board that you can't even fit on a, on a dining room table. And he doesn't actually seem to like those that much. He, he'll <laughs> tell us about the game he got, but I, but I don't think I'm ever actually going to play it. <laughs> with Adam, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, Something that something that moves quickly, something that's got some you know kind of rhythm to it and has some you know some flow, uh, but isn't isn't incredibly complex. For you, I'm going to say, and I and I say that, and you go back a second. I don't I don't mean like you know like simple game. I mean you know something that it's more about the flow and uh, and the, the movement of the game than about the, the complexity. The complex game, of course. But for Tim. I'm going to say big boxes full of small arcane tokens, like <laughs> tiny little bits, tiny, tiny little bits with no cohesive um, you know, in, indicia of anything on them. You have to figure out places to put them on a lark. No, I'm, 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 I'm a half joke in there. I know you love euros. I know you love very complex resource manipulation. And I think I'm going to say that that's, I'm going to say it's almost almost the opposite. That complexity uh, is a very interesting thing for me. Interesting, interesting. All right. Well, I guess we'll see if you're right. Let me jump in here, and I'm going to take a stab at you guys. I'm going to say, Chris cares about how well the theme integrates with mechanics more than anything else. I think that if Chris is playing a game where he feels like he is kind of doing the thing that um, the theme dictates and um you, f- you feel like you can be part of that experience i think that's one of the things that really drives fun for you so that's that's my guess for chris for adam i think one of the things that he loves about games is he loves a big stand up and cheer moment he likes when there's combat when there's like you can beat somebody down when you can roll the dice and see what happens and everybody is standing around the table waiting to see you know where things are going I think that's what Adam's looking for. He wants that experience in his games, and that, and that makes it fun for him. That's my guess. What about you, Adam? What 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 are you thinking that we're uh, how we feel about games? Interesting guesses, you guys. <laughs> Very interesting. Tim, I feel like he's always like, oh, you guys are always getting in my way, doing this, and doing that. I think one of the things he likes about games is a game with an ability that he can make a plan and execute. He doesn't like people coming in and scrapping over his stuff and ruining his ideas. He wants to be able to solve the puzzle and work his way through the puzzle. So that's one for Tim. And then also thinking back on some of the comments Tim makes, he likes a smooth 
user interface, one where the iconography all makes sense. He's always like talking about UI and oh, the iconography doesn't even make <laughs> sense here. So, uh, so I think those are some of uh, Tim's key points. Chris, I felt like it was I felt like it was easy. He he puts it out there what he likes and what he doesn't like. Um, theme. He's all about the theme. Usually some kind of dark monsters fighting each other, <laughs> scary theme. He doesn't care if the rulebook makes sense or not. Like Batman, Gotham City Chronicles, it could be the worst rulebook ever designed as long as there's like cool characters and a dark theme and you can sort of play the game. Chris is going to love it. <laughs> but then also Pan Am. He likes Pan Am for so, so that's a little like oddball one. I guess the theme is there in Pan Am. And then I feel like Chris really likes that interaction aspect too. He wants he wants to rub elbows or not just rub elbows, but start kicking people and punching people in the face. Uh, so those are my two guesses for both of you guys there. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, Adam, why don't you start us off? What is, what's one of the first things that you really love about or that you find fun in games? Okay. So this one is probably the most, the driest, a rule set that's worth the end product. A rule set that you, if it's small and light, then great. Is the game worth it? Is a, does a small and light rule set generate an awesome gameplay experience? Or even if the rulebook is a little thicker, like Eclipse, Second Dawn for the Galaxy, a little bit bigger rulebook. But you know what? Those rules all make sense. You read through it once or twice, and then the game, the rules get out of the way and let the gameplay happen. A couple games that don't fit this mold were Empires of the Void 2. So there's so many little edge kind of scenarios in that game and things that you're like, oh, well, I'm not sure exactly what happens now. Let me see if I can find this in the rulebook. And you're flipping around and you're spending five, ten minutes looking up a rule and come up with a judging. And another game that didn't quite fit this scenario for me was On Mars. They say it's one of the most complex games out there. It's really not that complex. You can do this action and that will have ramifications to this action and you combo stuff together. But the rules, they're just not intuitive. I wouldn't say they're complex, they're just not necessarily intuitive for what's happening in the game. So in On Mars, you can kind of build one building module next to another building module, or it can be exactly two spaces away in some cases, and then your rover can move here, but it can't stop here. It can pick this up, but it can't pick this up. You can't go back to On Mars without having to reference the rulebook and get back into it and spending a good 10, 15 minute spin up if you haven't played it in like a month. Something like Eclipse or Ennis. Dune Imperium, you get right back into it. It makes sense. It just flows. Except not to Steve on Monday night. Except not to Steve on Monday night. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So that kind of goes into what Chris was saying, is that a game that flows and you're not, it's not choppy. It just cruises right along and the rule set is helpful. It's not prohibitive in the rule set that just kind of makes sense after one or two plays. Yeah, I, I think that's a great choice, Adam. And um, I mean, I... When, when we were thinking about this list, this was one of the items that didn't make my list, but it was absolutely one of the ones that I wanted to put on my list. It just, I couldn't fit everything I thought found fun in games. But truly, if there's a game that has a lot of fiddly edge cases, you have to go back and reference the rule book for it. I just am not finding that fun. This partially comes from not only not wanting to have to learn all of that and the, the pause in the gameplay to go and look up the rules, but just trying to teach new players a game. It's already a lot to take in. I like mid, mid to heavyweight euros. I want to teach people these games and it's already frustrating for them to have to sit through a 15 minutes rules teach. If I have to stop and, and give them another 10 minutes of just little edge cases that might happen once in the game, that's just, it's not good. It's not a good experience. It's not a fun experience. And so I 100% agree with that. You know, clean, streamlined games are 
really an important part of making a game fun for me too. So that's a, that's a great pick. And that's something that's kind of risen to prominence for me as we've been playing more and more of these games over the last yeah. year. You know, I was just like, play anything uh, when we first started hanging out and playing games. And then now I'm like, uh, look at that rule book, man. I don't know about that. So I'm a little more reluctant, you know, is, is the game going to be worth it? Like High Frontier, I spent six hours trying to just move a rocket from Earth to the moon. And yeah. I don't know if I did it right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mentioned earlier in that episode when we were talking to, when we were talking to Jamie Stegmeier about how I, I know this, is a, this was a kind of a cop-out easy answer. And I said that one of the games, one of the IPs that I really loved is Star Wars. And honestly, the whole reason why I haven't liked, really loved any of the Star Wars games that are out is that they're so full of unnecessarily complex rules and clunky rules. And I think that's just a, a fantasy flight issue. And they happen to have the license for Star Wars, but there just isn't like a clean, smooth game in that IP. And that's, you know, that, that's why I called it out. But yeah, that's a great, that's a great one. And I'm a, I, I love it. Uh, what about you, Chris? I'm going to say player interaction. I, I think that is absolutely one of the things that when we have a great game night, a lot of times because it's a game that has a high degree of player interaction. And unfortunately, I think that lends itself a lot of times to the games that have significant combat. And in those situations, I mean, that is, you know, that's about the epitome of you know, tension in a in game world, right? I mean, you're going head to head with somebody, you're starting to combat. And I, I, I sort of love slash hate that feeling of um, a perfect example of this is Eclipse, where, you know, like my, my heart starts thumping, we're getting ready to go into combat and you're like, well, you know, what's Adam going to roll? What am I going to roll? And it's like, and, and you get kind of ramped up and then there's like this big, yeah, you know, if you do great or, you know, it, it feels horrible if you don't. And you, you get the trash talking going around the table. And I mean, that, that makes for a fun game. It's not the only thing that makes for a fun game night, obviously. I mean, you can have a, a game that's got a lot less interaction, something like a wingspan or parks. Uh, just a couple of examples of games that I think really epitomize that. Eclipse is one of them. Uh, another one is uh, Cthulhu Wars, which we did a show on a while back. Uh, absolutely one of my top games for like you know combat and tension, player interaction. Blood Rage is another one. A lot of the games that feature you know, big combat, I think, really have that aspect. Nice. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised at all by that. And I will be actually kind of surprised. I mentioned that I thought that was one of Adam's things that made games fun too. So I'll be interested to hear what, if that comes up into Adam's list here. I was going to say, you know, I was saying about combat games. If you can think of one, I'd be curious to know if you guys have, particularly you guys, if you're bringing this up now, uh, are there any games you can think of that have that kind of intense interaction that don't get that interaction through combat? Well, since we're talking about it, this player interaction piece is absolutely on my list. I, I think both, at least Tim guessed this. I think Chris guessed something similar to this. But I love the player interaction. Why go to a board game night just to stare down at your player board and not really look around at the table? Unless you're Tim Doloff, and that's really what you like to do. <laughs> Some examples of this. Again, you brought it up, Chris. Eclipse is a great one. I like PAX Premier 2nd Edition for this one too. You have your tableau and your spies and you can move your little spies around the tableau and you also have the map up there and you can manipulate your armies or your roads and take out other people's things. So not only the player interaction, but also kind of the player entanglement. So some games, I'll bring one up here in a second. You know, if I do this, it's going to benefit myself and Steve, and it's, but it's going to hurt Tim and Chris. And do I want that to happen? Do I want to incentivize... Steve to take this action, which will maybe he'll hurt Tim later on, which will help me eventually 
put, you know, be in a better position. A lot of these cube rail games are kind of like this. Irish Gage is kind of like this. You have this entanglement aspect. It's not necessarily a combat or direct roll the dice, punch somebody in the face. A lot of these cube rail games, there's, there's this game 1841. It's one of these train games, high stock incentive, but there's also a map and you're trying to connect these routes. You get entangled with these other players because you own part of their corporations. So their success also benefits your success to varying degrees. And you can sell their stock and that hurts them and it hurts everybody else who owns their stock. You go to the map in a train game and that's kind of like the battlefield. You can token out routes. You can lay these tiles that just ruin somebody else's route. You can block out routes. In this game, 1841, there's so much freedom and so many options in there that I really like that entanglement aspect. And it gets kind of messy and you kind of have to you know, sift through the weeds to see what action is going to benefit you the most, or it's going to help some people out, it's going to hurt some people. So who do you want to help? Who do you want to incentivize? And that whole kind of messy entanglement is something that's, it's pretty neat in that specific game. All right. So you guys got me so wrong because I'm going to jump in here and say that one of the things that I like, that I have fun in games is games with frequent player interaction. But, but, and this is, this is actually where Adam actually kind of got me right but not in a way that will be mean or gonna ruin a player's game. So I do like those moments of player interaction. They are fun, sometimes for me, but I've seen it for everybody. If you're in one of these big dudes on a map games, games where you can go in, come into somebody's space, get a good dice roll, and they're, they're basically knocked out of the game, that can be really frustrating too. So I don't, you know, I don't love that, not just for the way I feel about it, but kind of going back to, if I'm bringing new people into a game, I want everybody at the table to be having fun. And I think this is a common theme that I kind of found in my, in my you know, situation in, in my list. And that is that let everybody have a fun time through the whole game. Um, you know, Eclipse is a really fun game. It's a really excellent set of mechanisms, but someone can literally get removed, exterminated, completely eliminated from the game. And that's not a great next hour that they're sitting out of the game or sitting there with one ship and they have no chance of coming back. So I like player interaction. I don't like that direct eliminate another player and I'm targeting you. And that's the other thing too. I think sometimes that player interaction can result in, you know, Chris saying like, man, I'm just pissed at Tim tonight. So I'm going to go in and I'm just going to attack Tim or, oh, Tim's won the last two games. So I'm going to go in and I'm just going to take Tim out or, or, you know, Chris, it's like a king-making situation. Like, those are areas of this intense player interaction that I, I like the big moments, the stand-up and share moments and see how things go. But I also think they can lead to some negative, you know, kind of a negative experiences. So what I do like, though, is when there is a lot of player interaction, when it matters what other people are doing, and I have to work around that, but it's not directed. You know, it's not going to stop me from doing my thing. I just have to kind of work with that puzzle. I've got a couple examples. First of all, Worker placement as a as a euro mechanism is really heavy player interaction. It may not seem that obvious, but it, it's always fun to me to watch. Hey, I've got these three things I need to do in this turn. If somebody else has taken my spot, first I have to make that decision and say I've got to take this one first because this is the most important thing for me. And if I don't take it, someone else could. So let me prioritize what I need to do. And if I do that first thing, I may not be able to get those do those other two things, and someone else can come in and take that. So that that's player interaction. But that's kind of a generic, kind of a light one. So I'm going to give you guys a couple examples of more heavy player interaction that are not direct, mean, ruin a player's game type of interaction. Number one, Dwellings of Elder Bale is a recent Euro game with dice chucking. You can go in, 
take somebody's spot, roll dice. But the great thing about dwellings is that you're just going to that territory to get what that territory gives you. And people recognize that. Yeah, you needed that resource. Yeah, you want to dwell there. You're not coming in just to ruin my game. You're not coming in there just because the only way to get points is to knock me out of the game. And if you get lucky, I may have a worse turn. I might not be able to do everything I wanted to do that round because you won that combat. So it's fun. It leads to those exciting moments. But I know I'm not being attacked. I know that I'm not attacking you and making you feel bad about the game. But we still have those fun moments in it. Another one, Dune Imperium. The combat, the, the conflict in Dune Imperium is an excellent example of this because one of the only ways to get points in the game is to go into conflicts. Everybody can take the worker placement spots, play the cards to try to get some combat um, power, try to be successful in that conflict. And if you win, awesome. And it's usually a very exciting moment. Who's gonna you know, turn over that intrigue card that gives them some extra combat power? Who's gonna reveal at the end of the turn with more swords that are gonna you know, have an impact there, but nobody's getting picked on. Everybody's just in there to win the conflict and do their thing. And so it results in great player interaction, exciting moments, and it's not mean. And then the last one, this is a game that we haven't uh, talked about on the podcast yet, but it's one of my favorite, I would say family plus level game. It's called Jamaica. And specifically the game, the, the way I like to play it is there's an expansion called The Crew uh, that adds a little bit of fun engine building in there. But Jamaica is great. Uh, it's basically a race game. And instead of like rolling dice and moving around the board, you're, you're playing cards and moving around the board. You have a few choices of what cards you're going to play and that might dictate where you end. And if you end your turn on the same space as another ship, you're going to have a conflict. And it's a dice rolling conflict. So there's some luck involved with it. It's always exciting. You get there, ah, we're going to roll the cannon dice and see who's, uh, who's going to win this combat. But I didn't go there to attack you. I, go, I went there because that's what the card said I could move to this turn. And if I win it, I take something from you. If I lose, you take something from me. It's, it's impactful. It's fun. But nobody's left out of the game if they have a couple bad dice rolls. So those are a couple of great examples of games that I actually do like player interaction. And I like having to work around if somebody gets in my way. But not in a way where, you know, you guys are going to gang up on me or you're always going to pick on me or, you know, choose me to go after because I'm doing well in other places in the game. So kind of going right along with your concept there, a little bit of what Adam said, but the opposite of what he thought as far as his player interaction. So some pushback for like Eclipse, for instance, I think that's a great part of the game. I like the ability to be able to identify who you think is in the lead and to be able to kind of set yourself up and maybe take them down or rein them in a little bit. And I think that all ties into the gameplay where you have to design your ships and kind of set your position on the map in order to preserve your lead and be ready to defend it. Or, you know, see that, all right, you're weak on this front, so maybe retreat here and try to go attack this guy while, while setting it up. So I think that is, I guess, you know, everyone to each their own. Everyone has their own interaction that they like and don't like. That's one aspect I just really enjoy. Set up those ships. I know it's going to come down <laughs> to a dice roll at the end. And you've won these dice rolls before, and I've won them before. I think that's great. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, again, I, I think Eclipse is a really fun game, and I'm not saying it's not always, but I do think it can, I, I think sometimes it can be not fun. And I, especially there's, it hasn't happened a whole lot in our group, but occasionally someone will build up their ship really quickly. And then when everyone's kind of still just doing that building piece of it, they'll go into a space and then take somebody's, you know, basically whole armada out with a couple, you know, with a strong ship and a lucky dice roll. And then that person has got to play the next five rounds, the next two hours. With, without really a chance. You know, they, they, they have to pivot really hard and maybe they can make something work, but they probably won't. I think that's the risk with a game like that. And some people 
really love it. That's just not fun to me. And I, I think I think it's it's not fun to watch other people go through that frustration sure. for me. I think that's part of what it is. I really like I would like everybody to be having fun at the table. And sometimes it's just not going to be fun for somebody that gets that you know negative uh, interaction early. Um, I, I can I can totally get what you're saying, and I personally feel like it's you know that doesn't detract too much. <laughs> I mean, or, or I'm willing to take that risk with it. But I but I do get I do get your point. And as you were saying that, I keep thinking back to this certain marriage of state that we had once. <laughs> uh, you married me tapestry, which meant that everything that I needed to do on the track that I had adopted, you got the benefit from. And I couldn't even complain about it because we're married. So you know what I say? <laughs> That's a uh, <clears throat> totally different type of conflict and you were not getting picked on at all. But <laughs> but it created a memorable moment. Marital conflict, man. That's, kind of, that's still conflict. Adam, I think you, that was kind of your, you covered your second topic here. So why don't we jump back to Chris? What's your second, um, you know, what's the second thing that you find fun in games? Interestingly uh, to me, it's one that we had talked with uh, Jamie about in the same episode. And that is, it's when the effects of a game and the rules of a game kind of play into the theme of the game. And a couple of good examples just to, to, to highlight them uh, in Stonemeyer games. That was on my mind when I was thinking about this before the interview with Jamie. There is uh, in Wingspan where you have a predatory bird and draw a bird card and eat that bird, but if only if the bird is the right size, you have a giant bird and you have a giant bird. And actually, another one uh, it came to mind just when you were talking about Rebellion, in that I, I agree with you, not, not the perfect game, but there's some things in there where they're just thematically so perfect. Like I believe there was a card where it's like your your best buddy card or meeting an old friend card where you have you have Lando Calrissian you play this card and you get to bring in Han or Chewie or something like that and it's just you know, you play that card and it doesn't feel like a random just like oh yeah I'm playing down a card that's got an effect it feels like you're playing a story I love to see that and, and that really me that that kind of a rule where you can really make a rule interact with the story I think is just sort of the epitome of immersive game. Yeah, I totally agree on that, Chris. And, you know, again, it, it wasn't on my list. And I also can find fun in games that are a little bit more abstracted um, if they're still interesting mechanisms. So that it's not a, it's not the most important thing for me, not quite as much as it is for you. But I do love whenever I see that happen, whenever I see a mechanism that actually feels like it's, you know, actually telling the story or it's, or it's playing into the theme. I always, I like to call it out. I have a great time finding that. So it still creates a lot of fun experiences for me as well. Um, to piggyback on Star Wars Rebellion, I love that game, Chris. Tim and I were talking earlier about Star Wars IPs, and you mentioned Fantasy Flight. And the rulebooks are, even in Rebellion, the rulebooks are a little edge casey, and this might happen, and this might happen. This might... But for Rebellion, I, I make an, an exception because I love the theme so much, and the cards work so well with the story of Star Wars, and it seems just to all flow... And yeah, it took maybe four or five plays to get them all down. But for the most part now, I, I know all those edge case rules and they do all kind of make sense. I can snap them out really quick because they are, if not totally intuitive, you can, you know, force intuitiveness if that's even a thing. Rebellion was a good example there, Chris. I like that one. Adam, has uh, Sarah played Rebellion with you yet? No, I haven't forced her into that. <laughs> <laughs> Is she interested? Have you, have you brought it up? She's more of a Star Trek and might look at, you know, some of the Star Trek IPs that are out there. I heard there's a few good ones, but... 
All right, so let me go into what I actually had as the first one on my list. And this is, um, I like when the game requires you to kind of evolve your strategy. And this goes again a little bit against what Adam was thinking. I don't want a game where I have to sit down at the beginning and plan out my whole game and it'll just flow. If I get lucky or, you know, I just have the right tempo. I like that. I like to be able to plan, have some goals that I'm working towards. But I like when there's a tactical puzzle that you have to work around as well. I'll give you a great example. My first one is Underwater Cities. So Underwater Cities is a game where there are some goal cards that you guys are racing, that everybody's racing for. You have your metropolises, you're trying to hit those bonuses. So you have some kind of general goals you're going for in the game. You know you want to build up a big city. You might think you know what you're going to do with it. But every turn you have three cards to play with. And depending on what color those cards are, they match with the different spaces on the board. And that is so much fun for me that every turn I draw a new card and then I get to think, okay, what's the best way I can use this? What's the best way I can abuse this card in the next turn or two and get a couple options or a couple actions that I can do? They'll probably help me head in the direction of my main strategy, but I have to work around what other people are doing. And this, I think, also leads back to worker placement and underwater cities has that as well but the idea that every time i don't know what actions are going to be available to me so i just have to take my best shot and then work around it hey they blocked all those spaces i was going to do this turn well what's what else can i do what what's the next best thing for me to do and, and kind of jump to that so tim i have a question for you in regards to yeah. your thinking specifically with worker placement games how much do you consider spaces that other players might need how much do you like hate worker place and you know instead of hate drafting how much do you like oh i can see this space would benefit chris so much or that i'm i have to put my guy here and take what might not be my optimal play but it'll ruin you know his chances of getting this many points that mm. it might be the better play yeah i i 100 percent do that if i'm playing with someone else that's really experienced with the game that you know that that likes that type of gameplay like I, I will pay attention and I'll know exactly what everybody else should be picking based on open information. If I'm playing with newer players, I will usually not. I want everyone to have a fun time at the table. I want people to feel like they can kind of accomplish their goal. So I'll do a space if it's necessary for me. I won't intentionally block people. And then there's a weight on that, right? You have to balance like, is me blocking Adam more important than what I really wanted to do this turn? Or if I do that instead of this other thing, am I getting about the same benefit, but I can stop Adam from it? So I will definitely consider it when I'm in a serious competitive gameplay. If I'm playing the same game, if I'm playing Dune Imperium with you, Adam, at this point, you know, we're four games in, I lost my last game to you, I will be blocking every space that you need <laughs> if I know you need it. So that's the way I look at worker placement. It kind of depends on the audience I'm playing with. I, I think you really can do that, but sometimes it is, it's at the risk of your own strategy. You know, I'm usually typically playing to make sure that I'm optimizing and, and playing to win in a way. But you know, if, if that's the way to win, which is blocking somebody else, then I'll do it. Cool. So um, the next game that I wanted to mention here, I just I have a couple more examples just to kind of talk a little bit more about what that evolving tactical puzzle means to me. So Everdell is another great example. This is another game that we have not talked about on our podcast yet, but we will be uh, because it is still probably one of my top five games of all time. I love Everdell. And the main reason about that is the card play in it. You're going to start the game with like five cards in your hand and there's eight cards in like an open uh, group that you can play off of. So there's 13 cards to pick from. And so you have to choose what resources you're going to try to go to get with your, with your um, workers so that you can try to play some of those cards. But those are going to shift throughout the game. So there's a lot of that of just saying like, oh, that card came up. Is that more effective for me right now than this other card? 
But even on top of that, some of the cards combo off of each other. So if I play a, a construction, then I can play a critter for free off of it. And so if I see a critter come up that matches a you know, construction that's out on the table, all of a sudden the card that I was trying to play out of my hand, I might completely shift that and say like, you know, instead I'm gonna grab this construction first so I can try to add that critter to it. And there's, every turn is just feels like a really fun puzzle to me. You definitely can have a strategy. You can, you know, be planning longer term for what you're gonna try to do. But I also like that a lot of the cards, you can kind of combo off of them. So I've got a card in play now that benefits from me doing this one action. So now I'm gonna to try to abuse that and do as much of that as I can. So that's another example of a game that just, it feels like every turn you kind of have to re look at the field and rethink about what you should be doing optimally and, and go for it. So I wanna bring up a game that's fresh on board game arena designed by Tom Lehman that we had the chance to play the other night, Tim, Res Arcana. How does this game yeah. fit into that category for you? Yeah, I think um, I think it's a pretty good, I think it's a good example of it. It, it. We only had a couple plays of it, so I'll have to see if it lasts. It's definitely on on the top of my mind at this point. And I had a, I had a great time with those couple of plays, and I want to play more of it. But I think it does do a lot of that. You know, with that one specifically, every game they're fairly short games, which is nice. But every game you have a different deck of eight cards that you're playing with. So depending on the cards you have, that that whole game you kind of have to play tactically different than you would a previous game. And I like that too, even though it's not. It's evolving a little bit based on what cards you draw that turn. I like the fact that every game feels like a completely different puzzle that you kind of have to focus on. So yeah, I think there's, I definitely think there's a link there and that's part of why I found fun in it. The one last one I was just going to mention really quickly was Whistle Mountain, which is a fairly new game I've had a chance to play a few, few times and really loved. And that's similar to, in, in fact, this one probably more than any other game and that every turn, so the, what the other players do before it gets back to you, there might be new engines built out on the board, there might be new resource spaces on the scaffolding, there might be new um, engines to buy or new um, upgrades to buy. Like every time it gets back to you, there's a whole bunch of new choices and things that are gonna happen from that. And I love just you know, kind of shifting and, and getting to make those decisions every, every time. All right, let's go back to you now, Adam. What's your number three? This one's, it's production. But what I mean by that, I like components that promote the gameplay and help players understand the gameplay. Along with that, I want to say, you know, give me some beautiful art or quirky art or thematically appropriate art. All the games I've been talking about earlier fit into this mold. So Eclipse, Pax Premier, Second Edition, the card art for Innis, I think is outstanding. I want, you know, some components and some artwork that, that bring me into the gameplay and help me immerse myself. Uh, baseball highlights 2045. It's just a little two-player. You're doing some drafting and some deck building. And the art in there is just kind of quirky and reminiscent of old-timey baseball, but there's like robots and cyborgs in there. So that's pretty fun. And the, the components of there are nothing special. You know, there's the linen finished cards, which isn't anything unique these days. But you have these classic pawns that kind of are reminiscent of early board games like Trouble or something. But they're these wooden, just, you know, little, little pawn-looking guys. And those are your base runners. And you put them out there on your little cardboard mat. It's just really a baseball diamond. Something like that kind of fits this mold. It's it's not an outstanding production, but it's just so clean and nice. It has little pennants for each team that just kind of draw you in if you're a baseball fan. I've, I've been wanting to try that game. Have you just played that online, or do you have a do you have a physical copy of it? I have both. So I have a I have the physical copies. One of the first games I bought. It's it's a great little game. And then there's a there's an app. I couldn't get the app to work. It allegedly works online. You can play cross-platform against other players, but I've tried it a few times. haven't been able to get it to work. And user error is certainly mm -hmm. a possibility there, but I've tried it with some relatively smart dudes, and we haven't been able to, to get it to work. That's a, 
great game. Yeah, I'll have to. I'd love to try that one out sometime. Did you have some other examples of a production that stood out to you other than Eclipse and Baseball Highlights? Sure. So a game like Soul, which I know didn't hit necessarily with our group, Soul: Last Days of a Star, flying around these spaceships around the orbit of a star, and the map is just a huge bright star amongst the black backdrop of space. Energy is slowly dwindling down as these solar flares happen, and it's just like a ticking clock until this star explodes and goes supernova. Only one ship can escape. So that definitely brings me into the theme and the gameplay. You know, you almost feel like you're adrift trying to make it work. You're, you know, you're up against incredible odds. So it gives you that desperation type sense to the game. And the whole, the whole theme is kind of simplistic like that. There's not a lot of bling or a lot of pizzazz. It's just very very you know melancholy almost yeah there's i mean that's got really cool unique components though too even if it's not super you said blingy but to me i've seen the physical production of that game and it actually it it stands out quite a bit like it definitely feels unique so i can see that for sure yeah right it has table presence but it's not like say okay so some counter examples would be tainted grail for instance the production is amazing but there's just i don't know how many miniatures in there and do those add to the gameplay are you saying that you don't like the production on tainted grail or it wouldn't make fun for you or you just don't think that it right i think it's like too much like do all those miniatures really help the gameplay um you know they're they're cool looking and they're pretty but is it because you don't use them all or yeah they just most of them just sit there in the box what are they what are they for another counter example would be like dinosaur island or dinosaur world there's all it's beautiful art and there's all of this stuff with dinosaur island in particular there's like all these meeples and all these metal coins and all this bright color and so there's just so much stuff that gets passed around and there's all these little tokens there's little science lab guys and little cardboard chits going here and little tracker little cubes doing this little so there's so much it almost detracts like i just want to play a game i don't want to do i don't want to have to like mess around with all these little bits and stuff and there's it's taking up all this table what the heck's going on where's the game i want to play the game i don't want to mess around with all these little plastic cardboard pieces and stuff give me some game chris this has got to be one that was high on your list too right did you uh did you think about components when you were thinking about fun in board games yeah i'm actually just gonna jump on uh adam bandwagon on that one and that'll be my my third (laughs) as well because i agree with everything you just said i mean a really nice production doesn't necessarily make for a great game talking painted grail but nothing will bring me out of game experience faster than bad. So for example, uh, I mean, I have never heard anything but good things about Orleans as a game, but I just get enthusiastic about it because of the production, the uh, space base. And we played that a couple times and I, it's a fun game. I like the mechanisms, but I just, I can't wipe those, you know, goofy cartoony spaceships from my eyes. I mean, it just, it just hurts. On the other hand, you know, there's some games that just so into their their theme through their art and through their components that it just it's glorious. I mean, I'm looking at Scythe behind you right now in your video your video screen, and I'm like, man, the art in that game is absolutely absolutely amazing. You've got the, the humongous minis in Hulu Wars, where you know the size of these gigantic miniatures gives you a sense of like you know the, the game that you're playing, and that's kind of that's half the fun. Another Cthulhu, I'm going to throw two examples out there and actually maybe this is the counter to um, Adam's comment about Tainted Grail but there's a huge boxes full of minis and to me I almost I almost enjoy the fact that I've 
got this endless box of minis that I'm, I'm not using most of them any one time, but I love the fact that next time I can pick an entirely new character with an entirely new set of cards and an entirely new um, you know, player board and, and another mini and all that. And that, that adds, to me, that, to me, that adds fun. So I completely agree with that. I'm sure living up to all the my stereotypes in this, but, you know, theme and art and production. Chris, I want to ask you about Batman Gotham City Chronicles. I remember you showing us pictures of that. And it looks like there's just all kinds of miniatures in there and they look rad. So how much are, do you use those miniatures in like different scenarios, like different stories and you kind of play those out? Are they all involved? How does, how does the theme and the miniatures work into the game that play for you for that game? Exactly like you said, that you for each scenario you bring out a different set of characters. But what that does is create a lot of scenarios that you can play. And I, I imagine you could play like these endless rounds of you know, games with this and all these different scenarios. And for each scenario, you could have a lot of options there. In fact, that would be you know, when we eventually get back together again. That'd be a lot of fun to get a, get a multiplayer game with that one going. Most people every single time that you played it. But yeah, I just it's the the volume of the production there, I think does actually add something. And then can you talk about something like, I know you like Pan Am a lot. How does the relatively minimalistic production of Pan Am work for you? That, that's, a, that's a good question. I think, I think the answer to that is it's minimalist, but they did everything so right. I mean, every the things they did do, they did well. I mean, I think you had commented at one point, Adam, that map they used was you know, reminiscent of the maps that actually would have been used at that time uh, in uh, the airline industry. And the places that you go and the, the art for the cards, it was all places that now you look at like Beirut. You know, Beirut's not a vacation destination. But back when the game was set, it was. The art reflects that. And the, the selection of locations reflects that. And even just you know, the little planes. You know, the, the little planes aren't much, but they, they look cool and they get the job done and they interact with you know the cool board and the cool cards and being in just a really elegant and enjoyable nice yeah right on i i agree i I love production i think it really adds to a game i'm not again i'm not quite the same as you guys if a game doesn't have a great production like orleans you mentioned castles of burgundy i can still love the game i can still find joy in them production definitely helps for me but i i get that man I, i think it's really important i think it's uh I think it's something a lot of people are going to find fun in games with. Now, the rules, the rule book, uh, and the extra fiddly rules that Batman Gotham City Chronicles definitely outweighs the pretty awesome production there. <laughs> it's, it's hard to argue with that. It's funny you mentioned like Castles of Burgundy, um, Tim or Orleans. I think of Castles of Burgundy the same way. It's a game I never would have approached yeah. had you not brought it up. And it's, you know, maybe I'm just so, I'm a superficial guy, I guess. I like something that looks good and shiny and pleasant. So, but playing the game, it's so good. It's, it's so fun to play. So, yeah, I don't know why I have that bias, but, but I, I can't look beyond it. I guess I'm too, I'm too shallow to look for the substance there. Here you do. <laughs> My third uh, selection here is... I like games that give you that little dopamine hit. Games that give you a little regular, you know, that you can find bonuses in that, you know, you you did this thing and this thing and bam, I just got something special, you know. And um, for some reason, when I have that happening in a gameplay, it just feels so fun to me. Um, So I got a couple of quick examples. We were just talking about Castles of Burgundy. I love Castles of Burgundy because... 
you know what, early in the game, if I fill up a section, I get an extra 10 points. If I uh, place this type of building, I get to place another type of building. If I place this building, I get to get a building off the board. You know, almost everything you do in there, it's either giving you points or it's giving you an extra action. And sometimes you can chain those actions together. I did this action, I got this action, then I get to do this action. And I just love all those little things, those little combos that happen that everything's just giving you a little, I got something done this turn. Another example we, that we've been talking about a lot lately, Rajas of the Ganges, the Dice Charmers. You know, we played that online. I just picked up the physical production of it. And it's it's such a blast every single time. You can sit there and, you know, you're just rolling dice and marking some things on a piece of paper, but it feels like you're getting so many rewards. And I just, I, I get so excited playing that game. The last one I want to mention is Tapestry. And Tapestry kind of does the same thing. Like it seems really simple rule set there. You move your action marker up one track on the board and do what it says. Sometimes you get to pay a little thing to get something else. But what do some of those actions do? You know, I move up to a certain space. Oh, you get to increase a technology card. That gives you a bonus that might let you move up another space. That's going to get you another bonus. And so sometimes you can have a turn there where you're doing like five, six, seven things in a row. And they're just fun actions. They're fun things that are happening. So I just love those little elements of where like I did something and I got a reward for it. I know, I know that they're playing with me. I know the game designers are just messing with my mind and feeding me that little, you know, that little hit of dopamine. I love it. I don't care. I don't care that they're they're playing with my emotions. It, it still makes me happy to play those games. That's cool. That's great. Did you guys um, find that any of your games, because I want to mention just a couple of ones I just mentioned here. Did you find any of the games that you are calling out in these categories, were they, were they easy to fit across a lot of your categories or did a lot of them kind of get pigeonholed? into this game is fun for this reason, this game's fun for a different, completely different reason? I have an answer for this one. So I, the outlier for me, so the games I kind of looked at were Eclipse, Ennis, Dune Imperium, Baseball Highlights, Pax Premier, and this 1841 game. I've been playing 1841 asynchronously, continuously asynchronously for about the past six months. And it's got this, you know, so it takes a long time to play, maybe two weeks per game. We do, a, it's a slow buildup. It is kind of the outlier. There's, I play it on an Excel spreadsheet and I play it on an online implementation that's just a map with hexagons. And there's these, if you know anything about 18xx games, they're relatively dull production. There's circles and hexagons and black lines, a lot of math and calculation. So that was kind of, that's a game that I really, really enjoy, but it doesn't, you know, quite fit into the mold, like the rule set, the mm -hmm. rule book is, I don't know, 30 pages, and it's written like, uh, like an aircraft manual, or a car manual, or some kind of legalese, and the production's not really there. The one things that are there are the player interaction, and my last one, which I'm going to save for when we get to that. Yeah, I was, I was just curious about that because I found that with all of my categories, most of the games that I picked on this list would fit into any of the categories. That was for me, like I was consistently, hey, what are my top three games? Oh yeah, these are all the things I love about it. And then I create one of those categories and then find you know, half a dozen of my other top games are in that list, but they could also go on any of these other lists. So like with T Tapestry, with Castles of Burgundy, either of those could have gone in, you know, a couple of the other categories that I've already mentioned and another one that's upcoming. So I was just curious if you guys found that favorite games are just, they're, they're finding fun across, you know, the, across a bunch of different areas or, you know, are we leaning towards these games because they're fun, because they hit a whole bunch of these marks 
or is one of them good enough? Is, is a good production enough to make a game fun for you? Or does it also have to have a light rule set and be interactive and things like that? I, I, I kind of think that to make this type of list to be something that I consider a game that I find really fun and it comes to mind, it's probably hitting several things that I really care about. So going back to 1841, the rule set is crazy, but within that rule set, you can once you learn it, you can navigate within it and bend it to your will, and you can do so many things that once you've mastered that rule set, which admittedly takes a long time, but it's worth it to me what you get out of that game for what you put into it. So that kind of goes with that first rule set worth the, the gameplay product that comes out of it. All right. All right. Sounds good. Um, so Adam, why don't you just jump into what, what is your fourth and final category you've got here? The fourth one, Chris nailed this one. I want an appropriate crescendo. So I want an in-game climax. I like a game that builds. Preferably, hopefully I'm you know one of the last players that's, that's duking it out for the title at the end of the game. But even if it's between two or you know all the other players and I'm like in dead last place I want to see those dramatics and I do want those like stand up and yes type moments or I want to hear the groans and the cheers at the end of the game because I, that's just fun coming together and having those highs and lows I'm, I love that so you mentioned it Tim the final conflict in Dune we've had so many close ones where bust out that last entry card and it's a no and you win yeah. by one or two swords and it's just like it's so fun that that final combat in Eclipse, we talk, we've talked about a few times tonight, those dice rolls. Um, and that's after you're building up your ships this whole game and sort of cat and mouse with, am I going to go into this hex? Is, is Chris going to go over here and wipe me out? Um, it's just a nice buildup. And then Ennis, you start with just you know a few dudes out there and a few locations you can go to, and it slowly builds up. and builds up until you have six, seven of your clans members out. That sounds bad, but you know, <laughs> not clansmen. What do you want to? What do you want to call those guys? Uh, help me out. Here. Help me <laughs> out before we get disbanded. We'll call, we'll call them friends. We'll call them friends. People that just want to find a home in Ireland. <laughs> so you get all all your troops, all your dudes, all your friends out there on the map, and you're instead of just little jabs, little sparring at the beginning. At the end of that game, you're throwing uppercut after uppercut. You have all these powerful the red cards in your hand that you're dueling out, trying to battle for the one of those win criteria soul is the same way you're you're building up and trying to get these points before the the sun goes supernova and you know that it's count it's counting down and it's tense you don't know if that next card that flips up is going to be the final solar flare and the whole thing is going to explode before you can get out of there games that get you on the edge of your seat is something i love i want to just mention that last turn in in a dune game we played on monday night and you know this the game does always come to that last final conflict or last final moment in the game in this game uh, i was two points up on adam i knew he was gonna get he's gonna win the last combat he had tons of forces in there last conflict which was gonna give him two more points we're gonna tie He's sitting at zero, uh, zero spice. I've got one spice. I've got a way to get three more spice at the end. That's the tiebreaker. You win on spice. I'm like, he's going to get those last two points, but I don't think he can get me in tiebreakers. He busts out an intrigue card that I've never seen before, which is either worth two swords if you played in the game, or it just gives you 10 spice at the end of the game. Oh. Had no idea that that was even a possibility. He won by a card oh. that let him beat me on the tiebreaker <laughs> as, a, as a hidden reveal. And I loved it. It was so cool. It was so cool because they actually put this card in there that the only usefulness for it at the end of the game is to bust a tiebreaker. 
but you have a use for it you can do elsewise. I think it was one of the most clever little pieces of design that I've ever seen in a board game to pull that out. The name of the intrigue card is Tiebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was so good. It was, but yes, doing Imperium, I, that's exactly one of the things that's so amazing about the games that you start out slow, you, you know, those early conflicts. Yeah, maybe you can get some Solari, maybe you'll get a Spice, maybe you'll get one point. And then by the end of the game, the points are ramping up. Those conflicts matter more. And, you know, it usually, almost every game has come down to the final turn and a, a tight match between at least two players. And it's, it's always a blast. So that's a great, yeah, that's a great one. All right, Chris, what about you? What's your number four thing that you find fun in board games? My last one, I'm sadly, I'm going to maybe a little bit of a cop out because really what it is, it's something that pulls a lot of these other things that I've been talking about them together and that's and that's cohesiveness and what i mean by that to go back to the concept of immersion it's that everything in the game works free of the game and, and nothing kicks you out that's a pretty high bar i mean when you think about it because it's you kind of have to get everything right and when you find that game that has almost everything one little thing that kind of you know makes you go it's sort of like, you know, when you're watching a movie and you see the, the signature of the guy in the, the monster suit, and it kind of takes you out of it. And so, for example, I'll give you an example. I played Dwellings uh, of uh, Elderdale. Amazing games. So much good stuff going on in there. Almost achieved that level, but there was, for me, the Dwellings part. It's like, what? How did the dwelling? How did the dwellings become this big thing? Like, how it's, it's almost like they had to find some way to work it in because they put it. In, <laughs> it's you know, or the games. Were, I didn't give you the flavor on the game, Chris. I'll, I'll explain okay. that to you sometime. There is a point to it, but I get it. I get it. Okay. Well, but yeah, I mean, it's and then there's games where you know they, they throw the kitchen sink at you, where it's like you know, you know, it's like rule salad. You know, they just make up stuff you know for the sake of you know complexity, but it doesn't it doesn't game, it doesn't have the game, um, but then you have those games that really just succeed everywhere. I'm talking a lot about rules, but it's, it's not just the rules, it's also the art and the production. You've got player interaction, that, that's great as well, and the theme. When those things all come together, it is absolutely magical. And just a couple of examples that I can think of. Um, one of them is Parks. You know, it's a relatively modest midway game, but everything in it from the art set to the production of it, the quality of the, the pieces. Every little bit of it. I mean I feel like I'm I feel like I'm visiting a national park when I play this game. And that, that feeling is so amazing. And I find, at least for me, that nothing pulls me out of that. And once I'm in it, you know, I, I'm in it. And Pan Am is actually another good um, which is funny because, you know, Adam had raised that as, a, well, how can you love production that much and have this game that has a modest production? But there is, there's so much elegance that the, the, the pieces, not necessarily being perfect, but everything is just right. It all fits together, art, the production. And to me, that kind of leads me back to sort of my, the holy grail of a game that pull all the pieces together Able to mesh next, able to mesh that with the theme. Um, I just, I absolutely. Chris, I could not agree with you more. I think I kind of alluded to it, 
with my little likes about games, but I didn't pinpoint it as well as you just did. I love that cohesion in a board game, and that's something I look for. It make, it brings the game to life for me, really, when, when that happens. So, well said. So, Chris, the, the whole story behind the dwellings of Eldervale is that there is a new fantasy land that was discovered through a portal. Just like humans are wont to do, uh, all these races have destroyed their current land. So they've got to find, you've got to get there and settle in this new place first. And so the whole point is to get there and build up your, your you know, your dwellings, build up your homes and, and be the one who lives there and kind of succeeds the best at getting there and, and surviving. So hope that helps. <laughs> Tim, what about uh, you? What is your... What is your final like? Better be good. <laughs> it is good. It's better than anything else we've talked about. <laughs> the one other thing that I uh, that I really really love in in games is, and then if I don't see this in a game, I generally do not enjoy it. And that is if there is a sense of progression in the game. Um, a lot of this comes into engine building. So I'm going to give some really great examples of engine building games. But generally, if I don't feel like if I play the first round of the game and I play the fourth round of the game and what I can do in that round and how the game feels is no different, that is usually a pretty big turnoff for me. I'm usually pretty bored with the fact that why did I just waste those first three rounds? I could have just played the fourth round and that was good enough. I, it, that's really important to me. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Terraforming Mars had to make this list because it is one of my favorite games. The, the sense of progression, the engine building there that I really love that I don't see in a lot of games is that income um, basically the buildup of income that happens over the game. So you've got these little six little tracks on the board. You can track your money, which are like credits. You can track your steel production, your titanium, titanium production. Thank you. Plant production. Um, and then like heat and energy, I think, right? Those are the six. And so it's really cool. So if you manage to play a card in the game that lets you increase your production, then at the end of the round, you're going to get that amount of things. So throughout the game, you just have more capabilities to, to buy stuff, to build stuff, to put plants out in the field, to, um, you know, to, to open up more cards that you can build. And I just think that that's a really fun way to do engine building. I know it's just cubes. I know it feels very mechanical, but I just love that, you know, I definitely feel by the fifth, sixth round, I can do a lot more. I can have a lot more fun options than I could at the beginning of the game. Talk about dopamine at the production phase of that game. You're getting in all these little cubes <laughs> and put them in your tray and sliding stuff over. It feels so good to do all that stuff. Yeah, totally. And then, then there's also the fact that you are building building up a tableau of cards. So you, you also are going to have more things you can do. So yeah, a few different elements there. What was that? What were you going to say, Chris? Actually, I'm glad you brought up terraforming because you know, ironically, considering the production of that game is not the, not the most exciting that that is one of the games that I would put into that category of they, they pulled so many things together in that game, you know, so cohesively that I think it is one of those ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right on. Yeah, totally. All right, another one I'm going to talk about is a game called Near and Far. It's a Ryan Lockett game. And Near and Far is an interesting little game because it is a Euro. It's got a little bit of a worker placement type of mechanism. But it's also a race game, and it's also an adventure game, and it's got sto- it's got a storybook. So when you go to a certain space on the board, you're gonna have someone open up the book and read a little you know paragraph and give you decisions. But the thing about that game that always stands out the most when you're playing it is that it is really a heavy engine builder. There's this these artifact cards that you can acquire during the game, and you can build them. And every one that you build has some little symbols on it, and it makes you stronger. It makes you either your characters can fight better, they can travel further, they can. There's some different skill checks in the game that they give you benefits for, and you'll end up by the end of the game with 
five, seven, ten of these cards out on the game, on the board, and they've just given you all these abilities. And it gets a little bit complex at the end because you've got to, on the last turn, you know, you got to do a skill check. Oh wait, I've got you know three symbols here, three here. This one gives me something extra when I do this thing. So it's it's a whole bunch of stuff to track, but it's a really fun way to build up. And they've managed to to do all these cards you can build up, and it's like four or five symbols and then occasional text that you have to read. So it's not that hard. You also have these adventures you can hire from the tavern when you're in the city. Can hire these little adventures and each of them has some different icons on them so the game really does you feel completely different the first turn you can't go more, go more than a couple spaces when you leave the city by the end of the game you can take like five turns do two camps beat a monster that's got 20 power it's like a completely different game by the end so that's a game that i've had a lot of fun with really enjoyed and i think a lot of people think of it as a, it's a storybook game or it's just an adventure game to me it's it's a really strong engine building game that has a lot of thematic elements tied into it that i really like the last one that I'm going to mention is Gaia Project. Gaia Project was an interesting example because Gaia Project actually goes against some of the other things that I find fun in games. And so, um, you know, specifically like it's not generally a tactical puzzle. That game is full open information. Once you start the game, you kind of know what's going to happen throughout it. So from that aspect, it doesn't really meet my first definition of fun. But I love that as you're building up, you know, you've got more production throughout the game. You've got new technologies you've unlocked. It's just a great engine builder. You really do feel more powerful. Your last turn, you're going to be able to do a lot more than you could in earlier games. And I love the way it develops. What about you guys? I, I think, Adam, you've even mentioned you like engine building a lot in the past. So I was kind of surprised that this didn't, didn't show up on your list. But do you guys find that that's, you know, something that's important to you or just something that works once in a while? If it's done right, I really like... It's part of the crescendoing game, I think. Yeah, I kind of loop that in there. Yep. A game that builds up and it starts off with some jabs here and there and then builds up where you can you feel super powerful at the end. It's something like Gaia Project, it doesn't necessarily... <laughs> I always feel like for each part of your engine that you build, you're destroying some part of it when you have to put a piece back. So that part is kind of frustrating to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I like it to a point, and uh, I think... Terraforming Mars does it right. And then, you know, Dune Imperium, I like that kind of the deck building thing is almost like an engine buildery kind of feel to me. Yeah, you know, deck builders are an excellent example of engine building, I think. I Probably the, the best pure example because essentially every turn or, you know, typically in a deck builder, every turn you're buying a card or buying a couple of cards so that after you shuffle your deck, you're almost definitely going to have a stronger hand the next time, right? And and I, I love that. Yeah. Star. I want to talk about this Star Realms game Chris and I had tonight. We, I think... You know, at one point we were up at, I had like 83 health and Chris was up at like in the 70s health. And I think by the end of the game, I had gotten rid of my entire starting deck. We all had like yeah. eight or nine bases. My final play, I had eight bases over on the left and I was able mm -hmm. to play in the teens of cards out. And I had to get 50 something attack points to take Chris out. It was this game lasted like if we were playing live half an hour, forty five minutes for a game that's typically ten minutes. Yeah, that must have been. Uh, you must have had a bunch of the expansion, the expansions in there. Yeah, oh, yeah. we played with a bunch of the expansions. There was one where literally either of us could have won it based on the next draw. He drew, he drew a bunch of bases that I couldn't get through, and I had a whole handful of yellow cards that would have like made him discard his whole hand if I'd gone to the next round. But you know, I just in that one. Uh, but man, it was that was. I had no idea that was going to 
last week. Yeah, so there's one thing I wanted to call out. So we kind of went through our list of you know what we find fun in games. Obviously, there's a lot of other things we find fun, but I, th- I think that's it's kind of cool because it gives you an idea of you know why do we pick the games we do. What, what are the games that we like more? And it'll be interesting to hear you guys vocalize what you find fun in games to, to see how that translates into future plays. Are there going to be more exceptions that you find that you still really enjoy, but it doesn't meet, the, meet those categories? There was one kind of common thread. I mentioned it a couple times. I, it's really important to me that everybody at the table is having fun. Um, maybe I don't, I don't, it doesn't always come across that way. I joke. I, I don't think it comes across as joking sometimes when I'm swearing at you guys for <laughs> attacking me or when I'm like, ha I just got you, you know, like I'm trying to, you know, be playful and, and kind of kid around, but I really do care that everyone's having fun. If I'm sitting there playing a game and I can tell someone's checked out, if I can tell somebody's like, you know, just not enjoying themselves, that just ruins the experience for me. So I, I was looking at this the things that I like about games, but I do think that these things also help new players get in and enjoy a game or less experienced players or somebody that doesn't know the game as well as I do, or, you know, wouldn't normally be as competitive. You know, I, lo- I think the fact that if there's an evolving puzzle in there, everyone's got a chance to kind of try to figure that out. You know, the, an experienced player can't script out the whole game and know exactly what the right strategy is. Uh, games that have player interaction, but you know, someone isn't being targeted. I think that's good for new players. They get those exciting moments, but they don't feel like, hey, you just stopped my whole strategy. Now, why did I bother doing this stuff? The engine building, everybody feels like they got to accomplish something. You know, So I, I think those are some of the reasons why I find those fun. They're, they make them fun for me, but I think I always just generally have a better experience when everybody else is also enjoying the games. And I mentioned this earlier, Tim, we were talking about it, the game group, the group that we have makes board gaming fun. You could put the ugliest worst gameplay game out there and I think with the four of us plus whoever else and we would just have fun with it whether it's talking like how bad it is I think there's something to be said for the chemistry of the game group too you know I think that that sounds like kind of fun to me let's buy some horrible game and play it and just rip on it the whole time like that that sounds like a good time the game group too makes a huge difference for any board game you put out there yeah yeah it's 100% 100% maybe our bottom five games should be our next go. (laughs) <laughs> Chris, did you have any any final thoughts? Anything else you wanted to add in? No, I mean it was just it, it was fun thinking through this. I, I really enjoyed doing that, and yeah. I mean you know I kind of went into it knowing that it was going to have a lot to do with theme because that's kind of what I'm into. But it was it was really interesting, kind of you know drilling down a little bit into what are the pieces of that, what makes that work, and what's fun about that. So I thought that was a great great idea. I agree. It was fun for me to try to pinpoint, to put some thought into what makes a board game fun for me and what do I actually enjoy about it. So I think this was a kind of a fun exercise. Right on. All right, guys. Well, thanks. That was a, that was a great conversation. It was fun hearing what you guys um, were thinking about through this topic. I think that'll wrap up our episode. If you're a new listener to the show, go back and check out some of our other uh, episodes. Generally, what we do is we play a board game and we immediately sit down and just have a conversation about it, talk through it, see if it helps you find some games that you like. Otherwise, I would love to uh, hear from you on social media. And until next week, take care, everybody. Guys. Bye-bye.